Would you please stand for the reading of the Gospel? This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. And he, that is John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please have a seat. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. It's a favorite quote of mine, and I felt like I must have used it recently, but I checked through some sermons and I couldn't find it, so I thought I was safe to go. But if I have used it recently, apologies, because I think it's a wonderful, wonderful way of reminding us about the choices that we each make day by day and which direction they take us in. It's a little bit like the portrait in the attic in the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, which slowly and remorselessly reveals the inner moral decay of Dorian Gray, whilst his external presentation remains eternally youthful. The reminder that the image we project may not align with our deeper internal reality. Our inside self might not always be quite as nice as our outside self. And the worth of a person we so often determine in fairly arbitrary ways based on pretty random markers. I feel like it's now like some sort of abacus. We normally start with some sort of scale. Maybe it's kind of nice to nasty, intelligent to not so intelligent, kind to mean. And we, we decide where on that scale we are and then adjust for the other people that we've just met. Are they a little bit nicer than we are? Are they a little bit more smart? Are they a smarter? See, I can't even do that. A uh, little bit kinder, whatever it is. And then we kind of analyze what we're going to do about it, how much time we're going to invest or spend with them, whether we're going to be prepared to stop what we're doing to go and help. But the wonderful thing about scales is that it's always a reminder that there are lots of people. I don't think on any of those scales, which I just mentioned, any of us are particularly far to one end or the other. We're all pretty average in here. And so there are always going to be tons of people who are way nicer, prettier, smarter than us. And who knows? But scales determine so much for us. And so today we come to this reading from Acts, and we hear about how God saw one man and how he evaluated his heart, and then how he decided to pursue him. And we're going to look at what we can learn from the story, both about God and about ourselves. So one of the fun things as we've been going through Acts, 
to seeing how that great commission from the end of the Gospels where Jesus sent his disciples out into the world is being carried out. This process of spreading the Gospel. And there's a steady sense of God's engagement as he gives agency to his people and yet is also constantly at hand, ready to guide, to strengthen, to direct. Last week, Amy took some time and took us into the story of Philip and the way he engaged with a magician in Samaria, a guy called Simon, crossing some very distinct boundaries of spirituality and power. And she told us how later even the disciples, the apostles Peter and John, got involved in his story. So this Philip that we're hearing about in Acts 8 is one of the seven deacons whom we saw appointed in Act 6 alongside Stephen. Stephen, of course, was martyred fairly early on. But these deacons were Greek converts whose first duty had been to sort out the meals for the Greek widows. They were kind of organizing the outreach activities of the early church. So it's quite interesting seeing how Philip is developing in his ministry because now he's preaching and teaching and casting out demons. Last week, we read in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city." Philip clearly has developed a thriving ministry in Samaria. Amazing things are happening. And so when we get to Acts 8, verse 26, we've got an angel come turning up, and it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went. Philip gets told to turn away from all this fun stuff that he's involved with in Samaria to go to a desert. He isn't told why, he's not told how, he's not forewarned as to what his purpose is when he gets there. But there must have been something about the way that the angel told him that he didn't hesitate, and he went. But I wonder if he was curious as he was going, kind of going, well, this must be something really good because stuff's really happening in in Samaria, so maybe this is going to be even better Or was he kind of irritated, sort of thinking, boy, this so wrecks my preaching schedule. I've got all these things I have to do. I've got a vestry to appoint. You know, all the things of an early church. I wonder if God, he felt a little frustrated as well at the fact that God was messing with him like this. How on earth was he going to fit in all his pastoral visitations? But the angel is quite clear, go south. Deliberate, clear instruction. God's initiative. God's in charge the direction to a desert road. I love the way that a spirit also gets involved speaking with Philip. It's a very important encounter. This wasn't something which God wanted him to miss. So Jesus had told the disciples to go to the end of the earth and the Holy Spirit is now firmly showing them how to do it. God is actively engaged in seeing his will work out. So what happens? Verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over 
and join this chariot. And now a remarkable story about how the gospel was suddenly going way beyond the confines of the geographic, ethnic, and racial lines that had followed so far. This man was from Ethiopia, it says. The most commentators now reckon that that's more likely to be what we now call southern Sudan. But the implication is he's a North African and presumably dark-skinned and clearly ethnically different from Philip. He was on a really long journey. The round trip, including time in Jerusalem, would have probably taken about a year. So he was a very focused gentleman. But he's also identified as a eunuch, which was probably an important part of him getting such an important job in Queen Candace's court, being seen as a safer person to have around the queen. But in order to do this, he had been emasculated. He had been disabled. I wonder what that had done to his social standing. I wonder what that had done to his relationship with his friends and family. His loss of masculinity isolating him and removing him from many of his normal social constructs. And in addition, it's also interesting that he was going to worship in Jerusalem because as a eunuch, he couldn't be a Jew. He couldn't ever really be a proselyte. He clearly was a follower of Judaism, but at best he could be called a God-fearer. And so here he is, sitting in his carriage, reading Isaiah. He's clearly more than simply curious. He's convicted and a worshipper. So he's not either a Jew or a Gentile. He's somewhere in the middle. He's somewhat other. And as a eunuch, he's also not seen fully as a man. The mutilation he had experienced also made him somewhat other. I wonder how much of this Philip evaluated as he ran up to him. Did he have a little scale which he was putting this man on? But he didn't run away. He didn't hesitate. He just goes with the flow. And he, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Now indeed, do you understand what you are reading? He started in a good way, as we're often told, by asking a question. And the eunuch responds and he says, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else. The text goes on, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Curiously, the, the, the eunuch doesn't really ask Philip to explain the passage from Isaiah. He just asks who it's speaking about. Was it about the experience of the prophet or somebody else? Now it's worth noticing the preceding verses from Isaiah, because it starts in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, saying, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. From the Ethiopian's perspective, what he's saying is, how could a man, how could this be written about a man? Could a man be pierced for my transgressions? Could a man be crushed for my iniquities? Could a man carry the chastisement that I deserve? Could a man have laid on him the iniquity of us all? Gift for Philip. What a great opening. Of course, a man could not take any of those things. It's impossible for one man. It would be impossible for the prophet to be talking about himself. No man could carry the sins of the world. And so it's 
Philip's Gateway Inn, and he just says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I love the fact that Philip jumps in there and he begins to tell no doubt about how the lamb in Isaiah points to the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, a lamb led to an unjust and undeserved death. He points to Jesus who carries all our sins forever. He would have explained about the way that Jesus was convicted unjustly, a perfect man who did not deserve to die, dying for us. This was not perhaps the expected Messiah from a Jewish perspective, but it was the one that God had sent. And in doing so, God turned the death of Jesus into the greatest victory in the entire history of the world. Wouldn't you love to know exactly how Philip explained all of that to the Ethiopian, how the conversation unfolded? I wish more details were recorded. But the outcome is clear. Because just as abruptly as the story starts, it kind of comes to an end because he suddenly says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. I like the way he didn't even ask Philip's opinion. He just, you know, he was clearly used to making instructions around here. So he commands the chariot to stop and both descended into the water, both (laughs) Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. I don't know how the eunuch knew about baptism, whether uh, Philip had just explained it as part of his expression of who Jesus was and our need to identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection, a sign of our being forgiven. But whatever, however he came to that point, the eunuch acknowledges it and he asks that he can have the sacrament of baptism, that he can be identified with Jesus' death and resurrection. And then suddenly, suddenly the whole story comes to a conclusion. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught up Philip. And the eunuch saw him no more, for he was proceeding on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing on, he proclaimed the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Azotus is about 20 miles away. So somehow there was this extraordinary moment when Philip is transported again and lands up uh, in this town. And then he starts preaching. He preaches all the way to Caesarea. And actually, that's where he comes up again in Acts 21. We come across him living in Caesarea with four daughters who are all have the gift of prophecy or teaching. And so that was us, a little bit of Philip history. So what does the story tell us about God? Well, one of the things which struck me as I was reading this this week was how God valued this disabled foreigner who is traveling down a dusty, out-of-the-way road, sitting on a cart, heading south through a lonely, deserted place. And God loved him and sought him. And it reminded me of how much each of us is beloved, so precious, so loved by the Lord of the universe, the creator, the one who was before and comes after, the beloved by the one who became incarnate so that we can feel and touch and know him. God, who shows us through Jesus that he longs to be in relationship with us. And this conundrum of our own belovedness is sometimes easy to believe and sometimes so, so baffling and hard. But God goes to quite extraordinary lengths to reach this man. And equally, it reminds us how God uses us to reach the people he loves. 
God paid attention, Philip paid attention to the message he was given. He didn't hesitate. He didn't turn away. He didn't say no. He didn't even question. I love the fact that it's not the angel who speaks to the eunuch. He instructs Philip to do it. It's not even the Holy Spirit who speaks to the eunuch. He tells Philip to do it to use his earthly understanding and wisdom to respond to the questions which the man had. God isn't going to frighten us ever into belief or scare us into following him. He uses very ordinary people to explain the gospel. People who look just like everybody else. Average people like you and like me. I also actually really like the fact that the passage doesn't go on to say that this gentleman became uh, the, the evangelist for all of North Africa. I suspect most Ethiopians you meet today will say that Christianity in Ethiopia comes from him, but it doesn't record that in Acts. And I like that. It's stories just about this man. And I think what's great about this is that Philip took the eunuch on his own terms. He didn't actually evaluate the man before him. He didn't evaluate his ethnicity, his vocational calling, or his sexuality. He just made himself available and answered the man's questions even though the man was somewhat other. And sometimes we see and react to the otherness of other people. And while, if we're honest, sometimes we react to our otherness too. Sometimes we feel other because of our ethnicity. Sometimes I feel a bit strange being British amongst a lot of Americans. Sometimes I just never get sports references because I'm not sporty. Sometimes I feel other because I'm a priest. Sometimes I feel really other because I'm a female priest. And then recently I felt very other when I decided that I would take up my audiologist's repeated suggestion that I should cave in and get hearing aids. It's all been a really hard journey, discovering my own otherness. How often do we hide our otherness? What are the reasons we hide our otherness? Is it fear of shame? Fear of being seen as weak or lesser? Maybe even our own fear of ourselves, fear of ridicule. And sometimes we are visibly other. And sometimes our otherness is deeply internal. Our struggles with mental illness, the shame of past behavior or choices, the worry about how we're perceived, memories of psychological or traumatic encounters. So if you are about to evaluate someone, to weigh the relative importance of the person before you, and then to allocate your personal resources accordingly, Take a moment and remember, first of all, where you are on God's beloved scale. Because you are right at the top. You couldn't be any further to the top than the top. And that's where you are, as am I, and as is every person you meet. You may be other in the way you look at yourself, but you are definitely beloved. The lives of everyone around you, so precious, so fragile, and so other, from the smallest baby in a womb to someone close to the end of their life, those who are deeply annoying and frustrating are other, yet each person uniquely beloved. People making good or bad choices, beloved. Different race, beloved. Different gender, beloved. Different ethnicity, beloved. Fill in the gap, beloved. Would we say yes to the angel? Would we have allowed ourselves to be transported away from our work environment, which things were going really well, into an unexpected desert marathon to speak to a socially awkward individual with whom you had nothing in common? Would you have turned away from his otherness? Bear in mind that you are beloved. 
You have been chased, pursued. Others have been sent into your life. Your questions have been answered and you've been provided with space and resources to worship. And he's very likely sending you to speak to people who are other. Not looking at their outsides, but looking at their insides, their value. Remember that you are beloved. That psalm we read earlier keeps going. And it says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Even before the gods will I sing praises to you. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name because of your loving kindness and truth. For you have magnified your name and your word above all things. When I called upon you, you heard me and gave me increase of strength. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, that great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord be high, yet he has respect for the lowly. As for the proud, he beholds them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, yet shall you refresh me. You shall stretch forth your hand upon the furiousness of my enemies, and your right hand shall save me. The Lord shall make good his loving kindness towards me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Despise not the work of your own hands. Heavenly Father, I thank you that each one of us has our bits and pieces of ourselves that feel so very other. I thank you that those other bits are all a part of the ways that you are working with us. But thank you, Lord, that ultimately we can say that we are 100% beloved, beloved children of the Lord who seeks us, who goes out of his way to make sure that we are called and loved and our questions are answered. I pray, Father, that during this week you will keep reminding us of our belovedness, and that you will help us to think through our reasons for fearing our bits of other. Maybe you be willing for your Holy Spirit to be at work in and through them. And will you give us increased tolerance and kindness towards the otherness of strangers? Thank you, Father, that you speak through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are always guiding us. May we pay attention to your voice. Amen. <laughs>